Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Self-styled students of the Bible often impose personal arguments on their study of the text. In some cases, this problem is obvious, for example, when religious thinkers take sides on either side of the culture wars, or when political thinkers assume their ideological conviction or political stance is somehow, quote, scriptural. It gets nastier when our religious ideas shut us out of the gospel because our theology is in literal contradiction with what is written. But the worst of all is unfortunately the hardest to see. That's when the Kool-Aid is so sweet so culturally ambient, so assumed that you don't know you've been drinking it and you can't see when you are serving it. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 68 to 69. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 450 of the Bible as Literature podcast. That's 450 episodes. We've been doing this a long time, Richard, and over the years, our understanding of our own terminology has evolved. The way we talked about functionality in episodes 1 through 20, is not the way we talk about functionality today. We've come to understand how integral Hebrew grammar, Semitic grammar, the consonantal Hebrew, is to understanding literary functionality. We started with functionality in terms of behavior of characters in the text, but really you have to begin with the grammar. And then, as we worked through Father Paul's line of argument in the rise of Scripture, both on his series of podcasts and in the book, we came to understand that functionality was essential in the New Testament's play against Caesar and the Roman Empire, and the way that the writers of the New Testament co-opted the Roman household. And those who have been listening to our hearing of Luke chapter 1 on this podcast in the last few episodes, I don't know, 20 or so, I haven't been keeping count, have heard us make the case that Luke is treating Zacharias in the temple as a Roman patrician. Which brings us to last week's episode where we talked about tribal loyalty. Functionality and tribal loyalty. 
the argument in Western culture, an argument in which Scripture is not engaged and to which Scripture does not submit because it is not interested in your arguments, is a debate about community versus the cult of personality. That is an irrelevant debate in Scripture. If you want to join the discussion with Thomas Jefferson and John Locke and King George, knock yourself out. That is not the discussion here. There are plenty of people stuck in that feedback loop. There are lots of podcasts on political science and sociology. That is not what we're talking about here on The Bible is Literature. We are talking about the Gospel of Luke and the unbelievably ingenious play that the writers of the New Testament made against the imperial power of Caesar in late antiquity. They used scriptural functionality to decapitate the Roman Empire, replacing Caesar with Elohim in the story of the New Testament. Jesus Christ then taking the title Son of God and being crucified so that only his Father is enthroned. And this is so clear, as we'll learn later, God willing, on this podcast in the Gospel of John. It's so painfully clear in the Gospel of John, in the execution of Jesus, that only the name of his Father is glorified. That's what's happening in the story. But the fact that Zacharias is canceled here in Luke, the fact that ultimately Jesus Christ is canceled, the fact that everyone who functions in the seat of authority functionally in order to, by the power of the Shebet, which is the lightning rod, as it were, for the authority of the words of Elohim in the Midbar, whoever functions as the one holding the Shebet, when they are functioning thusly in the tribal setting in which you find yourself, they the individual, even though as an individual before God, they are canceled and ultimately don't matter. Functionally, in their setting, until God appears himself, you are stuck with that individual as your reference. It is personal. This is really difficult to submit to if you're stuck in the debate over community versus cult of personality, democracy versus authoritarianism, we're talking about literature. We're not talking about which political system you should choose. It's a different discussion. Ultimately, we are challenging you to dedicate your life to the study of Scripture under authority. 
We're not trying to tell you how to run the United States. Often I've made the statement that the Bible is basically an anti-imperial text. But this is, of course, functional, as you say, Father, because it's all about establishing an empire, establishing a kingdom, but that which belongs to God. And loyalty is also something that's functional, because loyalty from the flock is not the same as loyalty from the shepherd. Loyalty from the flock means that someone, an individual of the flock, stays or goes, right? And we have the parable in Luke about the shepherd that goes after the one and leaves the 99 behind. That shows the shepherd's loyalty in spite of the sheep's disloyalty. But the other option is the shepherd can stay and protect the 99 and let the one go. So who is the shepherd loyal to? That's the question. Who the sheep is loyal to? The sheep is going to wander. Are you the one who's wandering today? Are you the one who's wandering tomorrow? That's the only question as far as that goes. So if you're the flock and one of the sheep strays, you'll be sad, but you'll be fine. If the shepherd strays, then you're in a tough situation. And that's the very question of Hosea 1 through 3, which is, well, the land is completely disloyal and will go after any man who offers her anything. Yahweh is loyal no matter what. Yahweh always functions as married to her, even when she functions as not married to him. And that's the difference. And that's what's important. And this is why whenever there's a punishment or negative consequences or any kind of wickedness that the people have to go through, this is a good sign because it means that Yahweh is still loyal. He hasn't abandoned them. He hasn't shut them out. He hasn't dumped them. He's still there. He might be unpleasant, okay, but he hasn't left them. In spite of the fact that they did leave him, they did dump him, and they did go after a different god. So loyalty is functional in the most important way. There's a difference between how loyalty functions for the sheep, the flock, the people, as with loyalty from the shepherd or the king. The scriptural God, and now I'm speaking of Elohim in the story of the Bible, just reflecting on your comments, Richard. The scriptural God is exactly like an Ottoman sheikh, sitting down, smoking water pipe, drinking coffee, and relaxing in his tent. If his children come to him for advice or for support, he offers it. If his children turn their back on him, he doesn't go anywhere. He's there. He doesn't chase them, but he's always there. He sits and he waits, and he continues to offer support to all those in need. He is the constant. His loyalty is permanent. That's what we mentioned last week about the shepherd being the necessary ingredient. He stands in the midbar, reciting the dabarim. Ultimately, it's Elohim who is permanent, not the shepherd. The functional shepherd dies. Jesus is executed in the story, and the sheep are scattered. 
But the kingdom of the Messiah in this sense is permanent because another shepherd can be raised up to recite the same words that Jesus brought to us from his father. The words can continue to be proclaimed from the midbar. And in the scattering of the sheep, you have the deconstruction of institution. You're not building a city by the river. You are continuing to gather the flock. So ultimately, even though we're dealing with an individual shepherd, you're dealing with an individual Zechariah, you can't throw Zechariah away. You, under Zechariah, have no right to judge or dismiss Zechariah. Only the one above Zechariah has that prerogative. That's so critical for this whole system to work. And all of Scripture is a ton of bricks coming down on Zechariah's head. And, dear friends, that is how it works in real life. It is downward pressure of a kind you can't understand until you've sat in the hot seat. And thus it should be. And in Scripture, there is no mercy for the king. And that's how it works. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. This is what Zacharias is compelled to say now that he has been crushed under that downward pressure. He has finally conceded that he may not speak his own words. And from the perspective of those gathered to hear the words of Zechariah, Zacharias, their father, they are under his authority. He is their functional reference for the deity. But Zacharias is not self-referential. He has another reference, as we'll hear in the coming verse. And that reference is not self-referential. We're getting into the pecking order, the functional org chart, in which everyone is demoted. But those who are gathered at the midbar to hear Zacharias preach what he was given to preach are under the authority of Zacharias. So everybody who was reveling about what a bad guy Zacharias was and was trying to submit scripture to their Western argument about the cult of personality and authoritarianism and community versus the king and the people versus the man and all of this nonsense, you are positioning yourself against the gospel of Luke. And you can't hear Luke because of that. And you can't understand functionality because of that. That is a refusal to submit to what the text is teaching us. And I want to point something out because people will hear redemption and start talking about theology, Richard. This word litrosis is not the same terminology Paul uses elsewhere to talk about being redeemed from slavery. It's exhausting. 
the way they use words in English like lipstick to cover up and erase technicalities in the Greek text. The more I check these words that appear to be technical in English, the more disappointed I am with the translator's interpretation of the Greek. We have this phrase that he committed or enacted this redemption, which is a different phrase. So one of the things we have to be careful of is, you know, my expertise is not Greek, but one would really need to go into the technicalities of this word and what litrosine means as opposed to other vocabulary that's used around this. And there are other technicalities that one sees in this verse. That's the first thing where we talked about loyalty and the way it sounds is, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. It sounds like Lord God is the title and it's somehow related to Israel. But that's not how actually it scans. What it means is, blessed be the Lord, Kyrios, Yahweh, the God of Israel. Israel has a God who is loyal to them, who created them, who has not forgotten them, and his name is Kyrios slash Yahweh. That's how this functions. So the first thing is, blessed be this deity, and this deity is the God of Israel. That means that that God, that deity, has been loyal to Israel, and Israel owes its loyalty to that God, that deity. That's that first half of the verse. Second, your translation, Father, introduced a word, for he has visited us and redeemed his people. There's no us for he has visited and redeemed his people. That translation makes it sound like Zechariah is automatically assuming himself as one of the people who are redeemed. But he's not making that assumption in the actual text. This deity, the God of Israel, visited his people, Israel, and redeemed them. Okay, As Father Paul has mentioned many times, visiting is not good news. Your example, Father, you always use is the cat in the hat. When mom comes home, is she going to be happy to see a clean house or is she going to be angry to see a messy house? That's the visitation. It's a clean house. If everything's in order, the visitation is good news. If the house is not in order, the visitation is bad news. But this offers hope to the people, because he's saying that he is redeeming the people, his people. Now, who decides who his people are? He does, not you, not Zechariah. That's why Zechariah doesn't get to say us. Only the Lord gets to say you. So the people that he is redeeming are the ones that he decides and the one he visits. So the visit may or may not be good news. He may or may not be pleasant when he shows up. But ultimately, the redemption is taking them out of the hand of someone else. Either they placed themselves in their hands or someone else took them away and redeeming them back into his household. He is bringing them into his household. In Galatians 4.5, Paul uses the terminology inatus iponomu exagorasi which is redemption from the marketplace, as in paying money to buy a slave. 
the exact translation, I mean exact, I mean the interpretation roughly is to redeem those under the law, but the implication is redemption as in terms of making a purchase. What's interesting about this word litrosis here in Luke, it only appears a couple times in Luke, but it points to Hebrews. It's not pointing to Galatians. It's a different word. It's used in Hebrews, and it refers to the sacrifice, the blood of goats and calves. Through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained the eternal, and I'm going to use a different word than redemption, just to draw a distinction with Galatians, having obtained the eternal ransom. So I think here Luke may be drawing on Paul's argumentation in Hebrews to say something about what's happening here in Luke. He is somehow making Hebrews functional here in the text. There's a possibility here through terminology that that's what's happening, especially because, and Rich, you've talked about this many times, this term is used so sparingly, it makes it more curious. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. Another oddity of translation, the word is pace. Yes, I understand why they say servant, because it refers to David, a boy. But here's the trick. If David is a man, God is referring to him as his boy, which is not a good sign. And if David is a boy, he's effectively a slave. So in in one sense, it's understandable why they're consistent in saying thulos and pace are translated servant. They should both be translated as slave. On the other hand, it's not correct to say, oh, this means child, it's not necessarily as bad as thulos. No, it's the same, possibly worse. It's like saying that your slave who is a man is your boy. And that's in no way a comfortable expression. And it's important to hear this because we are explaining the pecking order in the org chart. Zacharias is your reference as a member of this community. He is the one holding the Shebet, to whom you must be loyal so that you can be crushed by the words that crushed him. And he's under God's boy. Where does that leave you? It's the classical scriptural pecking order. We talked about this in 1 Corinthians back in the day. It's very uncomfortable. You're stuck. You're stuck with the individual person who sits in the functional seat of authority. You can't divorce him. You're stuck with Zacharias in the story, and he's under God's boy. Good luck with that. (laughs) Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.